whole world is celebrating the 21st century, the new millennium, the third millennium. Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists, Buddhists, Hindus, communists, all celebrating the 21st century, the third millennium. But the question that needs to be asked is simply this, whose millennium is it anyhow? Whose millennium? Of course, everybody knows it is around 2,000 years since Jesus was born. There's nothing significant about the year 2000 because Jesus was born most likely in 6 or 7 BC. And so if you work it out according to the time when Jesus was born, we're coming up to the year 2006. But that doesn't matter a great deal. The Bible says very little about the actual time when Jesus was born. We do know that he wasn't born on December 25. That was never, never the birth date of our Lord. But be that as it may, everyone who celebrates the new millennium does so because Jesus Christ was born. Not anybody else, but because Jesus was born. I have here today a very recent copy of Time magazine. And uh, it has a picture of, of Jesus. It says, Jesus at 2000. This is somewhat a liberal magazine. It says, the memory of any stretch of years eventually resolves to a list of names. One of the most useful ways of recalling the past two millenniums is by listing the people who acquired great power. Muhammad, Catherine the Great, Marx, Gandhi, Hitler, Roosevelt, Stalin, and Mayo, come quickly to mind. There's no question that each of these figures changed the lives of millions and evoked responses from worship through hatred. It would require much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Not only is the prevalent system of denoting the years based on an erroneous 6th century calculation of the date of his birth, but a serious argument can be made that no one else's life has proved remotely as powerful and enduring as that of Jesus. It's an astonishing conclusion in light of the fact that Jesus was a man who lived a short life in a backwater of the Roman Empire who died in agony as a convicted criminal. The most important person you are ever going to meet is Jesus. Like a mighty mountain that looks down upon little hills, so is Jesus. All the greats in the world, including Churchill, Marx or Lenin are just little ripples on the surface of the earth compared to Jesus. Who was Jesus? Let me firstly give you some 
amazing facts about Jesus. Jesus, the Bible says, and history records it, was born in a little country town by the name of Bethlehem. There's something very interesting about little country towns. Jesus was born in one of the most obscure little country towns, Bethlehem, a little bit Danny and Linda Shelton like Thompsonville, Southern Illinois. <laughs> My friends Danny and Linda come, this is where 3ABN started. God often starts big things in little places. Thompsonville is a city of some 800 people. You don't want to drive through it fast and blink your eye or else you will miss Thompsonville. In fact, my dear friend Gowan McNeilis was pulling Danny Shelton's leg some time back and Gowan had to tell me this story. It was so good I had to tell it to you. Gowan McNeilis, who has supported our ministry and the ministry of many, many other groups around the world, told me this story. He said, in Thompsonville, he said, you know, it's such a little town and it's so obscure that the city council came together to consider a bid because Taco Bell wanted to move in there and establish a building. The city fathers of this city of 700 people met together and they said they could not have Taco Bell there in Thompsonville because they were not going to tolerate a Mexican telephone company. There's something, there were other stories that Garwin told me, but they're not suitable for television about Thompsonville. God can do amazing things out of little things. Did you know this? And 3ABN has grown and has become a world spiritual power, born in Thompsonville. Jesus was born in the Thompsonville of the old world. And then he was brought up in a scungy town, the town of Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Who were his parents? Who was Mary? She was a poor peasant girl, just a little girl. What about Joseph, her husband? He was a poor person. We would say that he was not even in the working class today. He was a poor carpenter. What about his country, the country of Jesus, Israel? It was small and contentious. It was like Chesnia today. It was a, a country that bred many, many rebels and the big power of Rome wanted to squash it like a bug. A contentious, unhappy place. It was a thorn in the side of Rome. His education. Jesus certainly did not go to a place like Yale or Harvard or, or Oxford. As far as we know, he did not even go to school. He was taught by his mother, and possibly the only book he had was about two-thirds of the book I have here today. The only book that Jesus had was the book of the Old Testament. It was not in book form, but it was a series of scrolls. So by the standards of some people today, Jesus was rather uneducated. That is because their standards are so screw-whiffy. His profession, 
Well, for most of his life, he was a carpenter. He was just a carpenter. He had none of the things that we would consider essential for success. Yet this man changed the course of history. Now, while I'm not an American, I'm tremendously interested in what goes on in America because after all is said and done, this is where I now live. I was watching the presidential debates for the Republicans the other night. I was quite impressed in many ways. And when they asked those politicians or politicians to be, I think they were politicians, what philosopher, what philosopher, what leader touched their lives more than anybody else when they asked Governor George W. Bush from the great state of Texas, what was the person who touched his life more than anybody else? He said, Jesus Christ. That today, of course, in America, in many areas, is a most unpopular thing to say among the liberals. And there are millions and millions of liberals in this country who despise the name of Jesus. But George W. said, Jesus. And then the interviewer said, Governor Bush, people will wonder why you said Jesus. He said, because he changed my heart. And he said, unless that's happened to you, you will not understand it. Is it not amazing that after thousands of years in the greatest nation in the world, people who are trying to become president of this great nation should say, and several others said the same thing, Jesus is the person who touched my life. And even though the cynics and the liberals in this country sort of hate the name Jesus, in spite of them, millions of Americans say the same. Why is Jesus so powerful? Because he is. The most powerful person in the world today. Well, of course, one of the reasons he's so powerful is because he died and he's alive. That's something that Karl Marx can't say. He died and he's alive. Why is Jesus so powerful, so different, so influential, so enduring? Because Jesus is unlike any other person. Please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 8 and verse 56 and onwards. And are you enjoying church today, my friend? John 8 chapter 56 and onwards. I'm looking forward to hearing that pipe organ. It's on my mind. The Jews said to him, verse 57 of John chapter 8, verse 56 we'll start with. The Jews said, your father Abraham rejoiced. He said, Jesus said this, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen, you have seen Abraham. Verse 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That is why he's the most powerful person in the history of the human race. No other person could say that. The words, I am, are the words that uniquely describe the self-existent creator God. These words form the basis for the word Yahweh. 
And so when Moses said to the great God who was talking to him, tell me your name so that I may go and tell it to the elders, he said, God said, I am that I am. The Lord Yahweh Elohim has spoken. Jesus is more than a man. I say to the liberal today, Jesus claimed to be God. You cannot say like Gandhi said, he was a great man and I respect him because personally we can't respect a madman. And if Jesus was not what he claimed to be, then nobody should say he's a good man because he's a ratbag. He's a madman. Did you know they've been doing lots of research around the world and in this country uh, on mental illnesses and they have discovered that one-fifth of us in this great land are suffering from some mental sickness and only one-third of us are seeking treatment? Now people who say, I am Jesus, I am God, or I am Churchill, if you meet a person who says those things, you say, he's cuckoo. He's crazy. He's mad. Jesus said, I am God. If he was God, we should fall down and worship him. But if he were not God, don't say he's a good man, he's a kook. But he said, I am that I am. I want you to turn to perhaps the greatest book ever written in the history of the human race. And that is the book of John. John chapter 1 verses 1 and onwards please. John chapter 1. And these are perhaps the most profound words ever written in the history of the human race. John chapter 1 verses 1 and onwards. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amazing is the thought that when the Blessed Virgin Mary held in her arms our Blessed Lord, she was holding more than a little itsy-bitsy baby. We have some beautiful mothers in this church with their little babies. Donna was there today doing her maternal duties with her beautiful little baby. What a beautiful baby that is. And Mary had a baby. And somebody, I think, wrote a poem or a song that says, she kissed the face of God. When she kissed that little baby and she just held that little baby to her breast and as he nursed at her breast, wonder of wonders, this was the one who had made the stars. How incredible. The Bible tells us that he opened blind eyes. He could do so because he was the creator. 
He opened deaf ears because he was the creator. He made straight crooked limbs because he was the creator. And death died in his presence. On one occasion, on several occasions, he raised the dead to life. Only God can do that. A prophet can't do that. Muhammad can't do that. Only God can do that. But on one occasion, one of his friends had been dead for four days and he came to the tomb. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus came to the mouth of the tomb and told them to take away the stone. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man heard the voice of the Son of God. Only God can do that. He is more than a man. We were having worship in our office this week and we were thinking of how great he is and why we should worship him. And we read the story when he was out on the lake and there came a tremendous storm and the disciples thought that the little boat was going to go down. And the Bible tells us that Jesus got up and we were filled with awe when we read the words that Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves. He spoke to the wind and the waves and immediately there was a hush, a hush. And the disciples huddled there in the boat in the blackness of the night. They said, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I ask you the question, what manner of man is this? Who is this man? And the Bible says there in the darkness they huddled around him and the Bible says they worshipped him. You see, he is more than just a human being. He is the son of God. And when it says the son of God, it doesn't mean that the father made him. No, no, no. He was with the father from the very beginning of time and there was never a beginning of time. The son of God and also the son of man. His birth was attended by blood and suffering. Mary would have groaned with the pain. There was blood Because he was not a spirit, he was a man. The Bible tells of the occasions when he became weary. On one occasion when he was in Samaria, the Bible says it was noontide. And because of the heat of the day, he sat down beside a well and he said to the lady who came, can you give me a drink? The Bible says he was tired and he was thirsty because he was a man. He had hunger and thirst. He had tears, hot, salty tears coursed down his cheeks, his sun bronzed cheeks. He did not spend a lot of time indoors. He was an outdoor man. He was a man and he felt suffering. If you would cut him, he would bleed. If you would strike him, he would feel the blow. And on the cross, because he was a man, he suffered the pain of the nails and the thorns in his brow, the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet. 
He felt it with an intensity that you and I could never understand. I want you to come to the book of Hebrews that describes his humanity. His humanity was not a farce. He was a real man. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and onwards. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might be a faithful, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so fully God the self-existent creator, but now living in a human body. Not half God and half man, but fully God and fully man. And if you come to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and onwards, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and onwards, my dear friends, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect or completely mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He was a real person. I want you now to consider his character. Jesus said some words that no man could ever say. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the way, I, you can follow me safely. I am the way, I am the truth. Jesus was the truth and Jesus always spoke the truth. We live today in a generation of liars. And nowhere is this more manifest than in the White House of this great country or in Washington, D.C., where people build their careers on being professional liars. And let none of those people think that they are walking in the footsteps of Christ because he was the embodiment of of truth. When he spoke, he spoke the truth from lips that were untainted by falsehood. He was absolutely honest. You could buy a second-hand car off Jesus. And you can off a disciple of Jesus, but not a disciple of the devil. And there is a difference. Sometimes people confuse in their minds the two. He was a carpenter. The chairs that he made were good chairs. The varnish did not cover holes in the chairs so that when you sat on the chair it broke and you said, I will never buy a chair from Jesus again. 
The table that he made was polished the best. It had strong legs. There was no rubbish in anything he did. Everything he did was sincere. And as you know, sincere is made up of two words that mean without wax. Because there was a time when carpenters, to cover up blemishes, placed wax in those blemishes and in those holes and painted over. And when you sat on the chair, it broke. It was not sincere. But everything he did was genuine. He was the real thing. He was the truth. And he was love incarnate. There was a woman, the Bible says, on one occasion caught in adultery and the Pharisees, believing that to be the worst of all sins, said, the law says that she should be stoned, Master. What do you say? And Jesus said, after writing in the sand and revealing the guilt of their sordid little lives, said, he who is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. He did not pick up stones. Jesus picked up people. He was love incarnate. On the cross, suffering the agony of bearing the sin of the world, he did not call down curses on the persecutors, but said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had a keen capacity for anger. On one occasion he went into the temple and there the fraudulent, pious religionists were selling things in the temple of God, doing their business in God's church, making money out of religion. What a curse it is when people try to make money out of religion. What shams, what humbugs, what hypocrites, but Jesus was none of those. And when he went into the temple and saw them making money out of religion, he took a whip. And he walked into the midst of them and kicked over their tables and said, Get out of here. You've made my father's house a den of thieves. Get out. We teach children, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. To children he was, but to Pharisees he had anger to the hypocrites yes he could be gentle Jesus meek and mild but don't think that this Christ was a mamby pamby pushover he was patient patient he was forgiving he said to the disciples 70 times 7 they said Lord increase our faith 70 times 7, he meant an infinite number. And on one occasion, when Peter denied his Lord with cursing and swearing, he sent a message after the resurrection, tell my disciples and Peter to meet me. Peter, even though he had denied his Lord, was redeemed for the, through the forgiving grace of Christ. No wonder... I say to you here today that the multitudes loved him. And what a storyteller he was, my friend. What a storyteller. When you take your Bible 
and read the stories that Jesus told. What stories they are. Now Churchill was a great storyteller, but nothing compared to this man. Shakespeare was a great storyteller, nothing compared to this man. The story of the lost sheep, for instance. The lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the glory land and goes in search of the sheep. And then the lost coin. What a mind he had. What a fertile mind. And then the greatest story perhaps that has ever been told, the story of the lost boy. The boy who squanders everything he has, he squanders his father's living and he takes his share and he leaves home and goes into the far country and there spends his money on harlots and wild living and ends up going down as a Jewish boy to feed the pigs. What a storyteller he was. How he painted pictures with words. There is the boy. Have you ever heard stories like these? No preacher can do anything like this. We simply tell stories about the stories and fail when we try to embellish those stories. But there is the boy in the pig pen and he thinks of the father's warm house and his loving heart and who returns to the father. Who would have told the story of the father looking down the road and seeing the boy coming and the father runs to meet him? Who would have thought of this story? Of the father taking, getting a robe and putting it around this smelly boy and getting a ring and plucking it on the boy's dirty fingers and putting sandals on his feet. Who would have told the story in church of a father who represents God throwing a party with music and singing. Who would have told the story of the elder brother who lurks the Pharisee saying, I've always served you. I've never broken your commandments. You never killed a goat for me. You never had a party for me. What stories? The greatest stories in the world. You can read them over and over and over again because these stories that Jesus taught contain immortal truths that have changed the lives of millions, I tell you. Was it Lord Tennyson? I don't remember. But I think it was the great Lord Tennyson who said, our little systems have their day. They have their day and they are gone. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Christ, art more than they. Our little systems. Shakespeare was perhaps the greatest writer in the history of the world, but we say nothing he wrote could compare with anything Jesus said. Jesus didn't write anything. But what Jesus said was written by inspired men down. Shakespeare was simply but a broken light of Christ and the rest of the greatest writers that people rave over. They were sim simply dim reflectors 
of the light of the sun like the moon reflects the sun but Christ is the son of righteousness no one can compare to this Christ his mission Jesus had a consuming passion Jesus said on one occasion to his disciples I've come to seek and to save that which was lost I want to say to my viewers on television I want to say to the members of the community Adventist fellowship the worth of your life is determined by the greatness or the smallness of your mission and if you are living like most Americans simply to make money and to get a better home and a bigger car and more money in the bank then you are really a fool because one day you're going to come to the place and realize that anything less, anything less than eternity is froth and bubble. A person's worth is determined, is, can be weighed in the balances of God, the mission. What is your mission? Why are you here? Is the world going to be better after your life or is it going to be of no consequence? Jesus had a mission. He was not born to live like every other little baby boy. He was born to die. He said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? A world was lost in sin and darkness. You and I were lost in hopelessness and he came to seek and to save that which is and that which was lost 2000 oh no more than 2000 years 2700 years ago a man lived in Israel whose name was Isaiah I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 that describes the mission of the Lord Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 would you like to know my friend why so many people are bored out of their minds why there is so much drug taking why that there is so much mental illness it is because people do not have a purpose for their lives their lives are aimless Jesus had a purpose Jesus had a divine sense of mission Isaiah described the mission Isaiah 53 verse 4 and onwards surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each one of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all that was his mission at Christmas time we think of the cradle we think of his birth in a manger we think of his birth in a place where cattle were placed at night time at the back of an inn but I would remind you today that the cradle was in preparation for the cross. I think it was Holman Hunt, I'm not absolutely certain, but I think it was Holman Hunt who did a painting of our Lord 
our blessed Lord. And he stands in the carpenter's workshop. He has now grown to manhood. And he stands with his face upraised with a look of ecstasy or perhaps of pain upon it. It's hard to tell. And the light is shining in through the window. And as it shines in through the window, it throws the shadow of a cross right behind him. And on the back wall you have little ropes and so forth. And they fit in with the cross. And so he stands there looking up to his father with this look of ecstasy or pain upon his face. And behind him is the cross. Jesus lived in the shadow of the cross. The reason he came to this earth was not just to be born but to die. Psychologists use the word transference. For, in, for instance, they talk about the transference of guilt. Many people, because they feel so guilty and because they refuse to accept responsibility for the way they act and the way they operate and the way they think, they blame everybody else for their problems. They blame the U.S. government. It's the government's fault. They blame their parents, they blame their children, they blame the church. Often the church, this is transference of guilt. Isaiah talks about the transference of guilt and our sins to Jesus. And I believe that, the, that this happened in at least three ways. I want you to notice this. Firstly, there is physical transference. Secondly, there is mental transference. And thirdly, there is moral transference. When I was a little boy, and I guess many of you can empathize, I had a mother who gave me castor oil. That solved every problem. <laughs> and sometimes my mother would say, John, let me show you how easily it goes down. And she would take some herself. And we have an expression that describes this, she took her own medicine. He took his own medicine. The minister preached a sermon and he talked what had to be done and he took his own medicine. I'm going to tell you that God took his own medicine. Because the Bible tells us because of sin, the world has gone astray and the world is filled with guilt and crime and passion and evil. And God has said, I am going to punish it. But I want you to know today that this Christ, this God, took his own medicine. Let me talk about the physical. How Jesus suffered the transference of the physical to himself. The Bible tells us, and it's an interesting text, it says that he bore our sicknesses and carried our diseases. I wonder what that means. He bore our sicknesses, we're told. But there's no evidence that Jesus was ever sick. What does it mean? We get a clue when Jesus healed people, when he touched deaf ears, he sighed. I believe I know why he sighed. Because when he touched a deaf ear, he felt in his soul of souls the deafness of the world. Every bird ceased to sing for him. There was no beautiful organ playing. There was no music, nobody singing. There was no laughter. He felt it. 
the deafness. And when he touched blind eyes and sighed, he sighed because he felt the blindness of the world. A world without a sun, a world without vision, a world without trees, and he felt it physically and then mentally. The world is filled with depression, hopelessness, despair, atheism. Think of the mind of the atheist, no hope. Think of the mind of the cynic, no hope. And on the cross, he felt it all. He felt the doom and the despair of the person who is mentally sick and the person who is turned from God. He felt it all, the horror of a great darkness. It was transferred to him. Never, never, never say he doesn't understand. He understands because this Christ took his own medicine. And then there is moral transference. This world is filled with a great deal of junk, my friend, and a great deal of depravity and a great deal of pollution. But the pollution that fills the sky is nothing compared with the pollution that fills the soul. And on the cross, during his last hours, he felt moral pollution. He tasted it. He felt it. He felt the defilement of the human race. And that is why he cried out in passion, My God, my God, why? My God, my God, why? The physical transference. He felt it. The mental transference. And now the moral transference. He tasted it. He experienced it physically, mentally, and morally. The great orator Fulton Sheen originated the words, Jesus Christ, superstar or superscar. And Fulton Sheen said, was he a superstar? Young people think he's a superstar. Fulton Sheen said, that is a start to think of him as a superstar, but there was no star over his room. Nobody gave him a star. They took him and they threw him out. They threw him out onto the garbage heap. He was not, Fulton Sheen said, a superstar. But if you look at his hands and his feet and his side and his brow, no, he was not a superstar, but Jesus was a superstar. Because he bore it for us. And in one dark moment, he was unfurled on the cross like a wounded eagle. The king of the birds that soars to the heavens. But in one dark moment, he was unfurled on the cross like a wounded eagle, a superstar. I want you to think that the Black Death has come back to the world, the plague that killed so many people in the Middle Ages. Millions and millions died. There was no cure. And it has invaded this land, it has invaded the world. And here in Southern California, 
in a laboratory, they have discovered the cure. And some will come to the cure and for the cure, but most won't come. And they die without hope. My friend, Christ has done all. But you and I must come. Or else it is of no effect unless you come. What holds you back? I will tell you what holds you back. It is pride and darkness and fear. It is sin that holds us back. You know the story of the children of Israel bitten by the fiery serpents in the wilderness. And Moses said a remarkable thing. He said, I'm going to put up there in the tree a bronze serpent. God told him to do it. A bronze serpent. How can a bronze serpent save? And so they placed in a tree, on a tree, they hung on a tree, a bronze serpent. Because the Bible says, and Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But the serpent was the symbol of sin, because our sin was transferred to him. But there was a difference between the serpent in the tree and the serpent on the ground. The serpent in the tree had no poison in it. He had sin on him, but no sin in him. And if you and I will come to him, the most important person you're ever going to meet, he will forgive you and change you and me. Listen, my friend, as the world celebrates the new century and the new millennium, let's remember whose century it is. Let us remember whose millennium it is. And let us allow this man to change our lives. Amen. Please bow your heads. Our Father, today you've come and spoken to these hearts of ours. We thank you for this amazing man. We thank you for this amazing God. We thank you that he's not a superstar who wanted the lights, but he was a superstar who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and that with his stripes we are healed. And today, our Father, we remember him today and we praise God that he's not dead, but he is alive and he is there for us and he will come again. Oh God, forgive us for our sins and change our lives today. As we're praying with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in the presence of God, who will say today, I'm going to look to this Christ, I'm going to invite him into my life as my Lord and my Savior. I want him to change my life. Would you raise your hand today? Lift up your hand high and make it a clear decision today. Lord, I want you into my heart. I want your blood over me. Lift up your hand high. Let the Lord know. You know he's watching you now. Let the Lord know that today 
you and I are taking this super scar, this Christ, into our lives. We worship you, our Father. We bless you. We praise you. And we thank you. And we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.